So, anything happening where you are, Catherine? Oh, no, absolutely nothing. Uh, nothing whatsoever. Fair. You know, there was this, there was this one little thing that happened this, oh, yeah? this weekend. Yeah, you want to tell me about it? Yes. Um, <laughs> I must inform you, Mary Grace, that Randy Butcher is no longer my boyfriend. <gasps> Gosh, your fake drama is so amusing. Um, I'm just borrowing the joke that he used on Twitter this week. Um, I regret to inform you that Randy Butcher is no longer my boyfriend. Because he is now my fiance. Because we got engaged over the weekend. Podcast wedding. Podcast, Podcast wedding. wedding. <laughs> it is Randy's fault. That's exciting. This podcast Congratulations, exists. friends. It's very exciting. It is Randy's fault that we're here. But yes, yeah, so for the for the folks at home, a brief synopsis of what happened. Um, so Randy and I met on CatholicMatch.com uh, in August of 2021, so one year ago. Uh, this past Sunday was the anniversary of the first time we saw each other in person. So we had gone on like a couple of Zoom dates and stuff. And after a couple of weeks, he was like, okay, I need to just come down there and visit you. So he came and visited me, and uh, so this past Sunday was the anniversary of that, and so we ended up uh, basically recreating our first in-person date, so we got lunch uh, with my friends, Jenny and Craig, who were the ones who ended up, like, taking the photos of the proposal, um, and then we went to a little park that's right next to the restaurant afterwards and walked around, then there's a little statue of a dragon it's like a playground statue. It's really cute. And Randy proposed under like one of the big archways that like the dragon makes. Um, we call it Dragon Park, even though it's not drag. It's not actually called Dragon Park, but that's what we call it. That's what the cool um, kids call it. But yeah, so he proposed there, and I knew a hundred percent for certain it was coming about an hour and a half before it happened because. <laughs> Well, Randy had smartly kept the ring box in the car up until we got to the restaurant because he wasn't going to be able to, like, get back to the car in a not weird way after lunch. But so I saw the ring box outlined in his pocket. <laughs> and so I said something to him, I'm like, what have you got in your pocket? It's so bulky. He's and just he happy was- to see you. <laughs> This is a family podcast. Is it? <laughs> Sorry. That's uh, fine. Uh, well, he was like, it's my keys. And I was like, sure, sure. Okay, is, we buddy. could have come up with a better a way. Oh, buddy. Okay, we got to work on that. I could. I was like, yes, I've, the keys that I've seen many times are suddenly square. Yeah. Okay, they we could have come up square with something before. much better than that. <laughs> I mean, I had my suspicions all weekend because, you know, it's our one year anniversary. We already have had the wedding date set for almost a month now. So it was kind of like we knew this was coming because it needed to come for us to like do, do the things you got to do to get married, do the things we got to do to get married. 
So, like, I knew it was coming. Um, but I knew 100% right before we went to lunch that it was going to happen. And then we had a party at uh, Jenny and Craig's house afterwards. Um, and Randy's been making a joke for months and months and months about there being nine goats at our engagement because there's an online quiz that's like, how many goats are you worth? And it's has, it's supposed to do with like your dowry price or whatever. And I took this quiz. We will link it in the show notes so everyone can know how many goats their dowry ought to be. Yes, I'm going to need to make a note of it so I don't forget. But anyway, I took this quiz like two years ago. And it said that I was worth nine goats and the maximum is ten. So... so- it's nine goats, goats is nine goats is pretty good. Um and I was honestly slightly concerned that he was actually gonna have like rented a petting zoo or something and there was gonna actually be nine goats running around at our For the basement. record, that's what I told him to do. <laughs> I- it's you- very reasonable when you look into it, okay? You encouraged him? To put live goats at my engagement. Goats that would then be taken home, not with you. Yes. I mean, I, did, I was decently confident he wouldn't try to actually give me nine goats. But yes, I was but I could see w- him not thinking through where they were going to go afterwards. So this was a harm reduction measure, Catherine. <laughs> That's good. I mean, I did also point out to him whenever he would threaten me with goats that they would have to go somewhere. Um, but so what he ended up doing was he bought an five like plush stuffed animal goats that were thrown at me when I walked into Jenny and Craig's house for our engagement party. He bought a couple of rubber goats that they put on. My friend Jenny makes delicious bang and cheesecakes and so she put the rubber goats on the cheesecake. Dig that a lot. Which was very, very cute. I loved it a lot. And then there was also one random ceramic goat that was apparently out on the porch as like a uh, teaser before I, I came in, but I didn't see it. So. <laughs> Was everyone else at this party, like, confused by the goats, or were they just like, sure, that seems par for the course? I am, was given to understand that they were told about the goats and what the whole deal was. Um, So they just went with it. And I, I now own nine goats. It's very important. Of a non-living variety about which I am very grateful. I I do feel that the ceramic goat ought to be at the wedding. Oh, yes. I need to fix it because one of its legs broke. Oh, no! (laughs) Maybe it'll go on top of uh, the groom's cake or something. (laughs) Oh, I'm thinking like we just put it in the really big centerpiece they put in front of the altar. (laughs) (gasps) Like hide it. Just like in the middle of it. Yes. (laughs) That's the mood I'm in. So no one so no one knows except us that it's there. No, I imagine because Randy's joked about having which maybe we'll actually do this, I don't know, having a groom's cake that's just a meatloaf frosted with mashed potatoes. 
instead of a cake because he doesn't really like cake. He's not a sweets guy. And so I'm like, I think the ceramic goat would look perfect on top of a mashed potato meatloaf cake. Yeah. Has he ever seen Steel Magnolias? I don't know if he has or not, but I have brought up this movie to him in reference to Groom's Cakes. <laughs> the Groom's Cakes, the red velvet armadillo. <laughs> the red velvet armadillo. She's like, a I don't movie. even know how you get gray icing. <laughs> It's so clever. That is one of my favorite. Classic. Classic, classic. But yeah, tell him I'll make him a red velvet armadillo groom's cake if he wants. (laughs) Or a goat. What? You will? How hard could it be, Catherine? (laughs) This person was making them out of their garage. Or a That's goat fair. red velvet. I don't know. <laughs> no, it has to be armadillo because she only does armadillos. Fair enough. Because roadkill. It's funny. Yeah. But yeah, she was making them out of her garage in Steel Magnolia, so it can't be that hard. No. Can't be. I, I believe I can figure it out. I do too. But yeah, that is my, my big news for the week. Congratulations! Thank you. When we post the episode, I can put some engagement photos on the feminine genus stuff. Do it. Because they're cute. They are. I'm also tempted to post some of the awkward ones of like Randy getting the ring box out of his pocket. Because <laughs> he, yeah. like, he has like his legs stretched out because he he's on his knees already. He clearly didn't practice. He did not practice. I what knee did he go down on? This is very important. Oh, he went down on his left knee. He did okay. it correctly. At least he did that right. Oddly enough, he didn't want to practice with me and like refer- rehearse beforehand, but whatever. Because <laughs> I was like, we need to drill this. This needs to be seamless and perfect. And he was like, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Seamless and perfect is not how I operate. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever, I guess. But yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So what are we talking about? <laughs> that isn't your engagement. <laughs> oh, you okay? Yes. Uh, you don't want to tell the story about what happened to your dog this week, or do you want to save that? I mean, Seuss had to go to the vet for her annual shots. The vet, before seeing us, someone had brought in a feral cat of some kind with some sort of injury. And the thing about feral cats is they don't really like to be touched. Um, And also, their main mechanism for expressing their dislike is just peeing on everything. Ooh. Yeah. And so he, despite having changed his clothes, smelled of cat strongly. Um, and I felt, like, bad for him, because we were there at, like, nine in the morning. He had a whole day to go. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Um, but Seuss has known both my parents and my in-laws have cats with very strong boundaries. And, and very clear and firm, like, rules of engagement. Uh, and so Seuss was like, yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I'm wise to cats. So uh, I'm not going to go anywhere near that, but have a great day. Thank you. 
Um, and so it took three people to hold down my 15-pound dog <laughs> so the vet could give her a rabies shot. Because she kept trying to, like, scoot away? Yeah. Oh. And she was like, I don't want to be near the cat smelling thing. <laughs> this is how I get smacked on the nose. <laughs> by the cats or by you? By the cats. Ah. Uh. I mean, honestly, okay, my in-law's cat has very strong boundaries, but as long as Seuss doesn't violate the boundaries, they get along very well. Um, my parents' cat, which I feel compelled to tell you, they only have because I really wanted a cat in middle school and then I promptly developed a very serious cat allergy so it couldn't come live with me like they told me it was gonna um, when I like moved out of the house. <laughs> if I feel that I, I must include that. She's just, um, she's just real mean. Aww. And so she will intentionally just walk over and smack the dog and it's like, why? So. Yeah, poor Seuss. We we didn't we didn't do anything to dispel the cat related trauma in her life, but we tried. Not really. We just stuck her with needles while also making her smell like a cat. Aww. Poor poor puppy. But she's now She's vaccinated. That's the main thing. And with that, welcome to the Feminine Genus Podcast. I'm Catherine Brewer. I'm Mary Grace Smith. We're two Catholic women in science talking about faith, science, and how they meet in real life. I felt the need to try to get that in there somewhere. Yeah, that's fair. I'll move it around. It'll be fine. Or I won't. And it'll just be halfway through the episode. It's fine. It's fine. So what are we talking about? What, What science topic are we unpacking today? Well, I kind of gave you two choices uh, earlier this week, and you did not tell me if you had a preference for one or the other. I do not have a preference, so roll. Okay. I'm going to go with, for this week, because this is just, that's been what's been on my mind this week. Um, I've been coming to the slow realization, I feel like, over the past several months, that... I have spent a good chunk of my life trying too damn hard at, like, everything. And slowly realizing, I don't actually need to try as hard as I've spent the majority of my academic career um, working at. Um... And so that's kind of what I want to talk about, just, like, how much, like, perfectionism and feeling like we have to be the best of the best, like, how much that can get kind of ingrained in us in education and how that's, like, kind of reinforced in grad school and, like, what does it look like to break away from that, um, in a good way. Fair enough. Yeah, because that's what that's what I'm thinking about right now. Yeah, I think that's valid. I think you're hard pressed to find somebody who doesn't have some perfectionism issues or struggles in grad school. 
Yes, because you know? I, I think science self-selects for highly perfectionistic, achievement-driven people. Right, and I don't think that's necessarily, like, inherently a bad thing. Like, you, you want the people who are designing your heart medication to be detail-oriented and committed to, you know, designing good drugs <laughs> and not just, like, phoning it in, right? Right. I think, though, that there's also a, a strong correlation between that and like, neuroses or mental health issues. Like, I'm thinking specifically, like, all through school, like, it was never about beating other kids, but it was always, like, I need to get, like, an A. I need to get 100%. And I think there was, like, this inherent idea that, like, that was what was expected of me. That was what I needed to do. Yeah. Um, in a classic sense, you know, this is what I need to do to earn love, like all that sort of stuff. And that, you know, made me live a lot of my academic life um, in, you know, high school and undergrad and through most of grad school with like a lot of anxiety. Um, and so I would just work like all the time. I worked on stuff so hard. I, like, studied all the time. And it's been interesting as I've been really working through things and as the Lord has been, like, really healing me of a lot of that anxiety and perfectionism. And, like, you know, as he's starting to help me work through that, I'm starting to realize, like, when the anxiety goes away, I'm not actually as driven as I thought I was. And the goals that I actually have for, like, what I want out of my life are not the goals I was trying to achieve for literally, like, 20 years. And and now I'm just like, gosh, dang it. Did I just, like, waste my time, like, chasing all this stuff that, like, doesn't matter? Yeah, no, I do think it's interesting to, like... Because you talk about, yeah, I felt the same pressure as, as a little kid. Like, I had to, like, anything less than 100% was, like, utterly unacceptable. And I don't know where I picked that message up because it's not like that was something my parents were demanding of me. I just, like, determined in my little child heart that, like, that was the only way. Like, to be perfect was the only mm -hmm. way to be loved. And, yeah, that's definitely not, like, an expectation my parents set for me. I just, like, decided it for myself one day. <laughs> well, and I think there's some implicit stuff with that as well. Uh, like, maybe your parents never explicitly said, this is what we expect of you. But I think in some ways maybe we do a disservice by being so achievement oriented, especially like in education. Um, I remember, you know, and this has only been coming from like my own prayer and like working with God and like going to therapy about all this. But this memory came up of me and my sister and my mom, like at a dining room table, like doing homework or whatever. And Ellen was my sister, Ellen, she was like struggling with 
um, struggling with something and I, you know, I wasn't. And my mom, in an effort to like comfort her, I think because she was kind of comparing herself to me, is being like, she said something to the effect of like, getting good grades, you know, like you're just different. Um, and I don't remember exactly what she said, but the impression I had was like, the kind of identity statement was that like, I am her child who gets good grades. I've been thinking about that memory as like a, a moment when I identified like, oh, I'm the kid who gets good grades. And so like I created an identity for myself out of a conversation that was never supposed to do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think we can even like implicitly like instill these kind of identification points um, in young people. Yeah, no, that's fair. And it is like a good thing to do well in school. But I think sometimes, you know, like we got we get a lot of praise for doing well in school. And we're like, yes, this is it. Yeah. This is how I get the love and affection I want. And because, you know, we're children, we can't like express like, you know, what I actually like about succeeding in school is feeling, you know, such and such way. We just are like, ah, yes, school makes me feel good. Must do more. Must do more school. And we don't like, and I think even in grad school, I've been thinking about this some too. Like you're never praised for being like, you thought you were like very intuitive about, you know, how this experiment was like going to work or what this experiment like needed to be successful. Like, we don't ever, in grad school, like, we don't ever praise things that aren't, like, the experiment worked. Yeah. You or, collected like, you, data that not only is clear and interpretable, but also was the results we wanted slash supported our hypothesis. Yes. Yes, that we're not supposed to have, but we all really totally do um yeah so I'm I just I feel like we do a bad job at praising things that are like actually like a part of who we are and we just praise performance and so we just end up with a bunch of people who are like really high achievers and can like work super hard, but can be driven at times by like anxieties or by like a false identification of like, I have to be like the best. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And the best is measured by some quote unquote empirical output, like, papers or grants or number of experiments completed and not like in personal growth and like how much you've learned and right yada, yada. which 
to a certain degree is like built into the PhD in general because like your entire PhD is based on successfully quote unquote completing an experiment resulting in a publication of a paper. So again, it's like you have to achieve this performance-based goal and you're not always critically evaluated on intuitiveness or communication or, um, I don't know, thoughtfulness or follow-through or discipline. Like other things that are actually important characteristics to have and develop we just don't pay attention to them correct and so I think a lot of people really can like not feel very well valued in their PhD and they can just like keep feeding this like performance neuroses that <laughs> that the kinds of people who go into PhD programs like tend to have anyway yeah we're, we're a high-strung bunch gonna be honest we are. And I kind of wonder, like, if we were, like, if we worked to heal for ourselves, like, the perfectionism and the sorts of things that, the sorts of, like, unhealthy motivators that we have, like, if we work on correcting those I don't know. There's a part of me that's like, what really motivates you then? <laughs> yeah, that's a scary question. I mean, ideally, it would be like the pursuit of knowledge and like wanting to make some part of the world better or more understood or, you know, so on and so forth. But Generally, it's just, like, graduating or getting the paper or, yeah, all of those kinds of things. Yeah, but maybe that's, that's not, not such, such a bad, bad thing. thing. What do you mean? If, like, if you're motivated by, I want to graduate. Oh, yeah, no, that's or the like, only reason we get out of here is because we have that motivation. <laughs> That's my primary motivation right now. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's the whole point for sure. But then you kind of hit a point where it's like, oh, like after a PhD, there's nothing to graduate from. What motivates me now? <laughs> well, and I think some of that is just really evaluating what does actually motivate you. And if it's not science... You don't have to do science. No, or at least like, like or at least like if it's not research, you don't have to do research. Yeah. You don't have to stay at the bench. You don't have to stay at the bench. And I don't intend to stay at the bench. Um yeah, because like I said earlier, like I'm realizing the more that I come to recognize like when I'm making decisions like from this like anxiety perfectionistic place mm -hmm. and when I'm not you know the more I kind of sit through that the more I realize that like 
when I'm not being motivated by those things, this is going to sound weird. I'm like not as intellectually driven as I thought I was. Like I'm interested in figuring out what I need to figure out to answer like the question at hand, but I'm not like Randy who will like read for hours just because he like wants to learn about a thing and like understand it more. Like I'm just not driven by that. Like my curiosity is driven by different things and yeah. Um, I don't know. It's so weird realizing that like the way I actually am and the way like God has actually built me is so parenthetical to the way that I've been living my life to this point. What a mood. <laughs> it's a it, little bit. It, it's, it's not a, a crisis. crisis. Okay, sure. <laughs> a little bit of a crisis. And I think sometimes it's so hard to, like, discern when you're in the middle of, like, grad school. Because grad school is really hard. And it's a real slog. And even when you are, you know, motivated by, by answering scientific questions and, like, genuinely trying to, like do good and not necessarily for just like graduating or getting the paper or whatever like it's still hard to do things that don't work 90% of the time for five years like that is hard on everybody and so sometimes it's hard for me to to necessarily discern like am I just tired because I'm in the middle of running a really hard marathon and I you know do still want to manage my own lab and and be in in more like bench science world or am I genuinely discerning that like no I want to do something else because like there are days where it's like man like having like a nine to five job where I can just like turn off my computer on Friday and not have to think about it till Monday morning like that would be really nice but is that just because like I'm tired or is that because that's an actual, like, insight about, like, me and what I desire, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Because um, there are other days where I'm like, yes, I love science. Like, this is amazing. I want to do this all the time. You know? Yeah, and that's a... It's such a hard question, I do feel like so much of trying to answer that is just trying to notice what, I mean, <laughs> this is where therapy and prayer intersect in much of my life and in all <laughs> of our lives, hopefully. Yeah, that's fair. That's um, very it's fair. like just letting the Lord point things out to you. Um, and I also think learning between like genuine consolation and the joy of the Lord and a kind of frantic excitement because like the devil's also good at getting us excited about stuff. It's just that if we're getting excited about something that's maybe not a hundred percent actually the best thing for us to be doing, it's like a very frantic and hectic thing and there's like a weird sense of urgency yeah 
But, like, when God gets us excited about things, like, I don't know. There's something very, like, peaceful and sustained about it that's different. And so, at least for me, some of trying to parse out that, like, what is me just, like, being tired or frustrated um, versus, like, what am I actually excited about has been engaging some of those, like, Ignatian tools of discernment. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I think that's very fair. But it's also okay to not know all the time. It is also okay to not know. It's also okay to recognize, like, right now is not a good time for me to answer that question. Yeah. Because when you're really grumpy, of course you think you don't want to do research anymore. You haven't eaten in seven hours and... Which happens sometimes when you get to work and you have a lot of experiments and you can't eat lunch till three. That's just kind of, that's just what happens sometimes. So no, you definitely don't always have to know what you're doing with your life. And it's also okay to recognize in the moment if you're like starting to think about these things and you're just not in a good place to think about them. Just keep doing the next right thing. Yes, there's actually a podcast called The Next Right Thing. I don't know if you knew that. I did not. I feel like I really need to up my podcast game. (laughs) Now that we have one. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I guess. (laughs) But yeah, like I think it's fair to be like, I don't know what I want for five years from now. Some days I don't even really know what I want when I graduate, but, like, I know what the next right thing for me to do is, and I'm just going to go do that thing. And then I'll figure out what the next right thing is. And eventually I will get to where I need to be. Yes, I think making our questions smaller helps a lot. And this has been, like, talked about a lot in other podcasts, and I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but... I guess by other podcasts, I mostly mean Catching Foxes. Um, They've talked about this a lot, but this idea of, like, having one job for your career or only, you know, basically, like, the job that you pick out of college is the job you have forever is a mindset that was very prevalent in, like, our parents' generation. Right. But it's something that's, like, rapidly going away. Um. Which honestly takes a lot of pressure off because it's just like, what do, you know, like, what am I doing next? Not what am I doing forever? Yeah. Like, I can, in fact, change my mind. No, absolutely. And I I never want to. (laughs) Like, there's something kind of romantic in being like, and then I'm going to find like an amazing place to work and I'll be happy and, you know, I'll work there for 45 years and I'll know everybody super well and, you know, like we'll form a community and it'll be perfect. And that's just not how it works. It's not how it works. And I'm kind of convinced it never worked that way, but I don't know. I mean, I also think thinking that way really kind of stifles how you let the lord work in your life yeah if you're just if you try to decide like this has to be the thing for 
forever. It's like the Holy Spirit's moving all the time and wanting to do new things with us and like just wants us to be perpetually open. No, and I, I completely agree. But I do think it's also hard and like not even like necessarily like with a job per se, but like I just really want to be like settled you know yeah stability is a very appealing thing yeah like i just i want to buy a house in a town and put down real roots (laughs) and you know be able to build like an authentic community and you know all this kind of stuff and and not have to move for a job in five years you know yes and again i think some of that also is just us being in our 20s yeah. Because we moved when we went to college. When we, we moved, we moved when school. we came here. We're going to have to move, move again. again. Yeah, and it's just like leave. tiring, you know? Yes, I think that's why Randy and I have been talking so much about like moving back to Memphis um, when I graduate because like he has family there. He has really deep roots there because he's lived there for you know, a lot, pretty much his whole life, except for like a span of a couple years. Yeah. When he was working and it's like, there's, there's just a lot of relief in knowing that I can move somewhere and not feel like I'm totally starting over again. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's a place to plug in. There's people I know. We have family support. It won't just be he and I against the world. <laughs> Right. In this town where we don't know anybody, you know. Right. So yeah, stability is a very appealing thing. But cuz that's what I think I crave more than like being in a job forever is like being in a place forever and like knowing people and feeling really like rooted and settled. Like that is something that my heart like for sure like wants cuz that's a really good thing. Mhm. And it's kind of how, like, even if, you know, we were nomadic, we were still nomadic within a community. So the actual, like, place didn't matter because you were with the same people. And so there's a part of, like, my heart that still, like, longs for that. And that kind of, like, really entrenched, deep community that feels kind of hard to build in grad school. Because, again, I moved here for grad school. I will move when I graduate. And so it's hard to be like, yes, like let's invest and do this stuff and then just like completely uproot it. <laughs> yeah. Years. And that doesn't mean that it's not a good thing to do. Like it is good to build community and make friends and pursue like relationship, but it just like makes it hard. <laughs> That's fair. I do feel like because I moved a couple of times growing up, So by the time I, like, went to college and by the time I was deciding on, like, coming to grad school, like, I could make the decision to move somewhere where I didn't know anybody, like, on my own. Because at that, and I also think this is just the gift of God. I don't know if he gave me an ability to make this happen or if he just did this for me a lot. Like, everywhere I've kind of lived, I sort of learned how to build a community yeah. For myself. Um, like, even in, like, middle school, I had, like, a close little cohort of, like, four or five girls 
and we were all like really, really close with each other and it was kind of the same, same kind of pattern. And the recognition that like this is temporary. Um, but I felt like the Lord gave me the grace to be like, this is temporary, but this is so important that I'm just going to invest everything I've got in this now. Yeah. And not, not worry about, you know, the fact that we're all graduating in a couple years and we're going to have to move other places and I'll lose touch with most of them for a while. And it's going to, I knocked my mic over. (laughs) Okay. I think we're still okay. Um, I don't know. I've kind of learned to not let the transiency bother me so much, I guess. Yeah. And, and it didn't bother me like in college at all. But I think, like, I moved for grad school and just as I was kind of getting my, like, wits about me and, like, starting to form community, then COVID happened and everything shut down for 18 months. And, like, we're really only, like, just beginning to come out of that in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And so it's, like, I feel like I've lived so long without, like, that super close community because it was just, like, not available to me because I was locked in an apartment for six months. And then locked in a house with your husband. Yeah. <laughs> Which is is wonderful, but also sometimes crazy. Um, you know, and so, like, we're only just getting to a place. Like, I feel like, like, this, like, last, like, spring and summer, it was finally like, ah, like, everything is open again. Like, we can gather in groups and all of that kind of stuff, you know? And so, like, I feel like I'm just kind of really beginning to build that really nice, like, authentic community that I've wanted. Because just the world went insane. (laughs) Hi, Seuss. Yeah. Seuss is complaining about something. She is, you know, loud. (laughs) She's at the door, so she's probably mad she can hear us and is like, number one, I didn't even know Catherine was here. That was rude. (laughs) and number two i would like to be in the room that's true i just realized she hasn't seen me for a bit yeah her life's hard man what can i say yeah but yeah yeah just grad school is hard and there's a lot of Transition, there's a lot of navigating uncertainty. Um, And I feel like we don't celebrate personal growth and development enough. Absolutely, yeah. In grad school. I completely agree. And so now it's kind of weird since I'm like having this epiphany for myself of like, oh, I'm not like, a super intellectually, you know, driven researcher who wants to go like, it's such a cliche phrase to use, but like cure cancer, even though you can't actually cure cancer because every person, every type of cancer is different. Every person who has cancer is different. You're basically going to have to learn how to cure cancer for each person individually. Uh, True. True point, which maybe we can have an episode about 
about that, about like why the phrase curing cancer is misleading and dumb. Well, it's, it's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. It's, it's more about finding strategies that can be adapted for individual cancers rather than finding like a miracle drug. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. We'll we'll do a whole episode on this, I'm sure, but but it's complicated and I want to say more, but I won't because that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're talking about today. In the future we'll talk about cancer. Um, but I guess what I'm reflecting on now as I'm like trying to go through grad school and hopefully you know, my last year and some change of it. I don't know. It's interesting having this new mindset of like understanding myself more, understanding a little bit more what my goals and motivations are and realizing that like, okay, research in the scientific enterprise and like solving the world's medical problems are like not as motivating to me as I thought. Um, Mm -hmm. that I care so much more about like connecting with people and telling stories and just wanting to take the things that I've learned through my own education and experience to like make a difference for somebody else. Um, I don't know. It's like, how do I finish grad school when <laughs> I feel like my goals and aspirations are so at odds with the way that like a PhD system is set up? Right. And even it's just it's hard to keep running Western blots if you realize you never want to run another Western blot again. <laughs> you know, like it's hard to stay motivated for bench science because it's kind of a slog if that's not something that like inherently is attractive to you. Even if you know that like the things that I'm learning, the skills that I'm learning, the perseverance and the critical thought and the problem solving and yada yada, so on and so forth will still be like really helpful um, later. You know, like, I'm still learning things that will be good. It's hard to be, like, and I'm going to do that by doing, you know, 50 more Western blots. Oh, girlfriend, it's going to be closer to, like, (laughs) several hundred. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, on average, I'm doing about eight Western blots a week. Woohoo! Which, if, in case you guys didn't know, that's kind of a lot. (laughs) It's kind of a lot of Western blots. So it'll probably be several hundred Western blots, but yes, it is hard knowing that what I'm doing now is like not what I want to do. One thing I am finding kind of helpful, well, is that A, I've got side hustles where I'm doing more things that are closer to stuff I like. Yeah. Um, so like making sure that I do spend time doing things that I actually enjoy. Um, and get like real energy and satisfaction from um, outside of work, but even like inside my PhD. I'm I'm want I've been doing it for the past two weeks, and it's been helpful. 
So it's something I want to keep up is like making sure that I take time each week to do data analysis and like think about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, because I also enjoy doing that. Like I don't like running experiments, but I like seeing where I'm at and thinking about what's going on and like what to do next. So like purposefully scheduling time every week to do the things that I know are more satisfying to me is really helpful. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I think you got to like do things that give you life and help you find joy (laughs) for sure. Find joy in the things that it's harder to find joy from. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's just... It's weird not realizing that, like, I'm not the person I thought I was and I'm not motivated by the things I thought I was motivated by and having to just kind of rediscover, you know, like, God, who did you actually make me to be and what did you actually make me to do? Like, what do you really want from me and what do I really want for myself because the more I think about it the quieter the life that I want for myself actually is right yeah like I just want to make a meaningful impact for the people who are around me yeah no I think that's that's very true because they're absolutely like when I was younger I was like I'm gonna win a Nobel Prize And people are going to know about me. (laughs) And now I'm like, you know, like. Or I could just like live a really good simple life. And like love my spouse. And, you know, do small meaningful things in my own community. Like that would also be cool. (laughs) Yeah. like, Like actually deeply touching like the hearts of your friends and community. And like who gives a crap if you're not... I don't know, Father Mike Schmitz or some big, like, Catholic speaker or Marie Curie who, like, everyone knows. Because and... I also think that that expectation is also kind of implicitly given to us at school um, and sometimes even in the saint stories that we hear. Because, um, like... When you learn history, you're always picking, like, the best of the people in history. Like, I did a third grade project on, like, Sally Ride, who was the first woman to go into space, I think. She was the first woman to do something in space. She was probably the first woman in space. You know, and, like, (laughs) I don't remember. It was so long ago. (laughs) Um, but like we pick those people or we pick Sojourner Truth was another woman that I picked because I had a slightly feminist bent. And so I picked like pioneers of different things. And Sojourner Truth was an African-American woman who like became a freed slave. Um, she was, you know, an abolitionist obs, but she was also a huge proponent of women's rights. And she was the one who pointed out the hypocrisy of the women's rights movement being 
we want women's rights, but only for white women. Mm-hmm. Ain't I a woman is the big speech Ain't she I gave. a woman, her big speech. So, like, but, you know, these are the people that, like, we talk about in history are these big people who do big things. And I think especially if you're academically gifted, it is kind of instilled in you that, like, you need to do exceptional things. Well, I think kind of especially as a woman, like, I am coming to terms with how acutely aware I was of how, like, in the grand, like, scheme of things, how unusual it was that I was able to pursue the kind of education I have received. Mm-hmm. You know, like, there were so many women who came before me who really wanted what I was just kind of, like, given as a matter of course. And I feel like I need to do something, like... Meaningful. Yeah. To, like, make their struggle that I am really grateful for like, to make that, like, worth it, um, I needed to run. Yeah, like, I need to win a Nobel Prize for all the women who didn't. Right, for all the women who were denied access to college, like, I need to do something exceptional so that, like, they know their struggle wasn't in vain. You know, these people that aren't alive anymore. Um. And they're God willing in heaven and don't care do not anymore. Care are yeah. perfectly happy with their situation now. Yeah. Um, they're like, yeah, like I felt like there was like pressure to like, because so many women who could have been exceptional weren't allowed the opportunity to be, then I must be. Or else I'm like letting down these women. Yes, but then the weird thing happens when you realize you're not in a weird way because that's like kind of part of what this whole thing has been for me too is like in grad school i am exceptionally average exceptionally average like i'm a good student like i do well i've had to learn and grow a lot and you know i have experiments that mess up and i'm getting better at like dealing with that like i had some western blot transfer transfers that didn't go great and I have to start over tomorrow and that's fine and like I'm plugging along but I am by no means the star student anymore right yeah because everybody is the star student and we've all been thrown into like a little like room together and then you know obviously like we can't all still be the best right but there's still that kind of lingering thought that that's expected or that that's what you have to do. And then you kind of have a bit of an identity crisis of I'm not the best anymore. And it seems like no matter how hard I do, like, or, you know, how hard I try, like I'm still not the best. Like I have actually reached, you know, it feels like I've reached the cap of my abilities. And there is like someone who's like, excelling farther than i am Um, but also yes and also at the same time acknowledging like i don't have the energy to keep trying and again because i'm working on perfectionism not running my life uh i don't really have the desire to be the best anymore yeah and like 
I do what I need to do. I'm dedicated. I run my experiments, but I'm also not as plugged into like a lot of the like grad school activities as some of my peers. And I'm okay with that. And I just like had to come to terms with that being okay. <laughs> you yes. Know? Um Yeah, because that's not what I'm in grad school for. You know, I'm doing what I'm here to do. And all of the extra stuff that, like, feels really, like, urgent and important in the moment, but actually isn't. You know? Like, I've let, I've had to let a lot of that fall to the wayside, and that's okay. Because I'm doing, you know, the actual important things. And it's okay that I can't do everything. You know, right. And it's okay that I'm not this other person over here who already has four publications and just got their F31 grant, you know, approved. And like, I never actually applied for an F31 grant. Uh, Because for what I need, like for what I want to do, like, I don't need to do that. And at this point, it's a waste of my time. Yeah, no, fair Uh, enough. And I just don't want to do it and I know again that does make me look more average or more mediocre than other grad students or like less motivated or what have you because like that's just not something I want to do um but yeah it's been a slow realization of like no I don't actually need to be the best anymore I just want to do a good job and contribute something meaningful to the to the people in my life and I do think grad schools afforded the opportunity to really like realign my goals with God's goals like as I've been like hitting this perfectionistic you know this perfectionism barrier and realizing I can't break it like I can't actually meet the goal that I've been trying so hard to achieve, which is like being perfect, being the best, doing a hundred percent that like, that's not achievable anymore. Um, and was never achievable, but so now it's like that. Okay. What I've been trying to do and the goals that I've been working toward in this frantic, anxious way okay, these aren't actually working for me anymore. And so now comes the time of like really prayerfully working with God. I'm like, okay, clearly what I've been doing this whole time is (laughs) not what you wanted. Because if it's what you wanted, you would have been blessing it. And I wouldn't be feeling so like distraught and frustrated over it. So we're going to slowly, like, Lord, how can you help me, like, slowly put this down and show me what do you want? Where do you want to put your grace? And, like, where do you want to open doors? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's also just, like, a maturity thing to, like, learn to be able to step back and do that, too. Yeah. Like, eventually you have to learn, okay, I'm still pounding on this door. 
and it's still not moving. All right, at what point do I need to take my hand off the doorknob and, you know, move Try on something to else. something yes. else? Yeah, yeah. Or no, realizing that you thought you were pounding on a door, but you were actually just pounding on a wall the whole time. Yeah, something like that. That you thought maybe was, you know, going to turn into a secret passage or something. But nope, it's just a wall. Yep. That wall you're hitting is perfectionism, and it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Anyway. Got any final thoughts? Um. Not really. Just, like, if you're listening to this and any of this resonates with you, um, I hope that... You take time to pray and talk to God and see a therapist if you need to. Like, perfectionism's yeah, not... therapy. Therapy's great. Perfectionism is, like, not supposed to run our lives. And, like, I just don't want anyone else who feels like they've been letting that drive their decisions or perception of themselves to have that happen anymore. Because the more that I'm kind of realizing what I actually like, what my real goals are, and, like, what really matters to me, and, like, the way the Lord made my heart, like, the happier I actually am. Yeah, absolutely. Even if it means my life is a little bit smaller than maybe I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with a simple life. Nope. I've feel like that's a Chesterton quote or something. I don't know. Thomas Smith is currently yelling at his radio. I know that much. Because <laughs> I mean. Thank you for listening. Please leave us a review on whatever uh, podcasting medium you listen to. If it provides a review feature, namely Spotify or Apple Podcasts, um, please rate us as well. Um, share us with your friends. Because that's the best way that people can actually learn about us and our show. Um, so if you think this show is something that um, the people in your life would want to listen to, send it their way. You can connect with us on all our social media platforms. I'll have links to those in the description. Or just look up Feminine Genus on like literally any of them and you'll find it. Um, and we'll see you next time. And remember, JP2 called you a genius. Bye, guys. Bye. Okay. Okay.